Genesis chapter 35, starting at verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Well, there was a man by the name of Henry Varley uh, who was associated with Dwight L. Moody. And he once said this statement. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man who's fully consecrated to him. The world will yet to do, will yet, has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. And the question that I have for you today is, are you that man? Are you that woman who is fully consecrated to God? John Wesley once said, If I had 300 men who feared nothing but God but hated nothing but sin and determined to know nothing among men but Christ and Him crucified, I would set the world on fire. The question is, are you among those men or women who are completely sold out to Christ? My hope and my prayer today is that we would become more fully devoted followers of Jesus as we look at this story. Christians uh, of yesteryear often talked about the idea of a revival. Often, Christians would talk and pray that a revival would come. We don't necessarily talk about that as much in our day, but years ago, that was something that would be talked about a lot, and they would hold revival meetings. Sometimes they would be tent meetings. And revivals were something that happened occasionally throughout the history of church. We see a few awakenings where we see these kind of Mass, uh, a mass number of people come to the Lord and a number of people uh, turn from their sins and become more fully devoted to the Lord. And so Christians throughout the ages have prayed for a revival to come. The great uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon defined a revival this way. He said a revival is to live again, to receive again a life which is almost expired, 
to rekindle into a flame the vital spark which was nearly extinguished. So when a revival occurs, believers are moved from apathy, from pride, from idolatry, and they're turned to serve the true God, to serve God with their whole hearts. And the result of that is the society begins to change, relationships begin to change, and that's kind of what we pray for as a church, is that a revival would come in North Tonawanda. But if a revival is going to come in North Tonawanda, it has to come first in our own hearts. Dr. J. Edwin Orr was a famous professor who was the foremost authority on revivals. And he was doing a lecture circuit in the 1970s. And a student came up to him and asked him a question. The student asked, besides praying, what, is, what can I do to try to kind of spur on a revival? What can I do to start a revival? And he said, without hesitating or without even seeming to think about it, he said, let the revival begin with you. If we want to see a revival in our church, in our city, we need to allow the revival to occur in our own hearts. So if you're here today, you feel far from God. If you feel like God has abandoned you, maybe you feel like you don't have the faith that you used to have. Maybe you feel like you've done things that you're ashamed of. And you feel like you're no longer that man or woman of of God who's fully consecrated to Him. This message is for you. So we look at this story of Jacob. I don't think it's a stretch to say that this is a story of renewal or revival. And as we look at this story, I think we can pull out a few elements of revival. Elements that are necessary for a revival to occur. And in turn, we can apply those, own, those things to our own lives. So remember, Jacob is a deceiver. He's passive. He doesn't like to face conflict. He's not prone to stand up for what is right. But we see in this passage that he undergoes a spiritual transformation, a spiritual maturation, which we might even refer to as a renewal or a revival. So what are some of the elements of revival that we see in this passage? Well, the passage begins with a command of God. It says, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Now, Bethel uh, means house of God, and Bethel was the place where God had first met with Jacob. When Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau, he stopped in uh, Bethel, which was called Luz at that time, and God appeared to him in a dream, and then Jacob renamed that place Bethel. It was the place where he first met with God. And so God tells him to go back to Bethel, to the place where he first met with God. And this might have been difficult for Jacob, maybe more difficult than it might seem on the surface. Remember what had just happened. Jacob's sons had exacted vengeance upon the Shechemites, and Jacob was afraid uh, that the surrounding uh, armies would attack him. And so he might have been prone to stay or maybe hide out rather than moving to Bethel. But yet he obeys God's commands and returned to Bethel. And here we see the first element of renewal or revival, and that's obedience. That when God speaks, we obey. Now, it seems pretty obvious, right? But it's, sometimes it's easier to hear from God than it is to obey God. It's easier to hear from God than it is to obey God. You know, sometimes we 
are searching for God's direction. We say, if only God could speak to me. If only He would speak audibly and tell me what I should do. But if He did, would you actually obey what He said? You see, we have God's Word. We have God's Scripture where He's spoken to us. Are we in God's Word where He speaks to us? And when God does convict our hearts, do we obey what He has to say? When we're reading the Scripture on our own, when we're listening to a message and we feel God kind of tugging at our heart, where God is telling us, you need to change this area of our heart. Sometimes what we do is we're like, let's try something else. I I must have misheard it. If it's something that we don't like, we move on to something else. It's almost like when I was uh, a younger believer, I would uh, play the game of uh, Bible roulette. Uh, Some of us maybe have played that game before. I don't recommend it. But you have a question in your mind, and you want God's direction on it. And so you take the Bible, and you just pick a spot, put your finger down, and then whatever it is, that's, you feel like that's God's will for your life. And so I would, I would do that sometimes, and I would be like, okay, God, do you want me to date this girl? And I'd open up, and I'd point to the passage and be like, this shall end in destruction. Uh, and I'd be like, oh, I better try again. And then I would open it up again, and it would say, you shall not sow two kinds of seeds in one field. I'm like, I don't see how that applies. Then I'd keep going, and then I'd finally find a verse like Genesis 26.3. It says, I'll be with you and bless you. And I'd be, finally, I heard from God. He spoke. But like, what, what about the other times? But I think we sometimes do that in our own lives. We want God to speak to us in the way that we want Him to act. If He challenges us, if He speaks in a way that challenges our priorities or the way that we're living our life, we're like, I must have misheard something. And we hear from God, but we don't obey God. But when a revival occurs, we take God's Word at face value. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's like when Peter spoke in Acts, and it says that the people were cut to the heart. That's the idea of what happens when revival occurs. When God speaks, God's people listen. God's people obey. Even when it's difficult. Even when it changes us. There's a conviction of sin and in turn an obedience to God. So that's the first element of revival. It's obedience. When God speaks, we obey. Second element of revival is repentance. Jacob says to put away all the foreign household gods, to remove all idols from their midst. Now, Jacob lived in an environment where uh, there were many gods. It was a very polytheistic environment. Uh, We see that in the story uh, a few chapters ago uh, where Laban had these household gods, remember, that Rachel stole. And while he acknowledges the power of Yahweh, the true God, he still was holding on to his own household God. So people had a number of gods. But this true God, Yahweh, would have no rivals. In Exodus, when God brought his people out from Egypt, the first command that he gave them was, 
you shall have no other gods before me. Yahweh is a jealous God. He's the only God who has the power to save and to rescue. And Jacob instinctively knows that no other God can stand in the presence of Yahweh. And so he tells his people, remove all the household gods from among you. We see a repentance as it appears that Jacob had grown lax. He had allowed these household gods to be present among his people. And now he says, let's be done with them. And he takes them and he buries them underneath a terebinth tree, hiding them, presumably so that nobody else would be tempted to worship them again. And so he repents of his idolatry, of his people's idolatry. Now in that day and age, they had little figurines that they would use as uh, things that they would actually bow down to and worship or things that were kind of good luck charms. And we don't usually have those today. Most of us don't have a little shrine at home that we bow down to. But we still have idols in our culture. An idol is anything that can take the place of God. It's anything that is utmost in our affections ahead of God. It can be really anything It can be good things. It can be bad things. It can be a career. It can be uh, our family. It could be sex. It could be drugs. It could be anything, whether good or bad. Anything that we put in the place of God could become an idol for us. Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, gives kind of a diagnostic for determining what our idols might be, what we might struggle with. He, He says the question, he says, life only has meaning... I only have worth if, number one, I have power and influence over others. If that's you, then you have a power idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by fill in the blank. That's an approval idolatry. Life only has meaning if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. That's a comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth, if I am able to get mastery over my life in the area of fill-in-the-blank. That's a control idolatry. Life only has meaning if people are dependent upon me and need me. That's a dependence idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth, if I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of somebody. That's an independence idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm highly productive and getting a lot done. That's work idolatry. Life only has meaning if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm selling in my worth. Work. That's an achievement idolatry. Life only has meaning if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. That's a materialism idolatry. Life only has meaning if I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities. That's a religion idolatry. This, my life only has meaning if this one person is in my life and happy to be there and or happy with me. That's an individual person idolatry. Life only has meaning if I feel I'm totally independent of organized religion and am living by a self-made morality. That's an irreligion idolatry. Life only has meaning if my race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior. superior. That's a racial or cultural idolatry. Life only has meaning if a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in. 
That's an inner ring idolatry. Life only has meaning if my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. It's a family idolatry. Life only has meaning if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. That's a relationship idolatry. Life only has meaning if I'm hurting in a, in a problem. Only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. That's a suffering idolatry. Life only has meaning if my political or social cause is making process, progress and ascending in influence or power. That's an ideolog- ideology idolatry. And finally, my life only has meaning if I have a particular kind of look or body image. That's image idolatry. We can make an idol about, uh, over anything. Anything that we put in the place of God can become an idol to us. It's not that any of these things are necessarily wrong. There's elements of truth probably in most of these things. But when we put these things in the place of God, they become idols. If we're going to experience revival, we need to look to God to provide us the meaning, significance, and joy that these idols could never provide us with. All of these idols will eventually leave us empty and leave us wanting. And so Jacob commands his people to remove all the idols from their midst, to repent of their idolatry. Jacob told the people also to purify themselves, to remove their outer garments. Now this is significant because, as we know, as we looked at last week, Jacob's sons had just exacted vengeance upon the Shechemites, and so their hands were uh, figuratively full of blood. Their garments were dirty with the blood that they had shed. And so Jacob calls them here to turn from that, to purify themselves because they're about to meet with God. And the same thing is true for us. When we come to meet with God, we need to deal with our sin. Repent of any known sin or idolatry in our hearts if we're going to experience revival or renewal in our hearts. And there's one other interesting aspect of this passage that we see in regards to repentance um, and this idea of idolatry. We see in this text that this lady Deborah appears, Rebecca's nurse. And this is interesting because we have the record of Abraham's death, of Sarah's death, of Jacob's death later, Rachel's death, Isaac's death, but we don't have any record of Rebecca's death. No record of her death. But we have here a record of her nurse's death. And her nurse doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture except for in Genesis 24. She's just kind of described as a nurse being uh, with Rebecca and going with Rebecca. So she's a real minor character in this story. And so it's interesting that it would bring her up at this point. We don't know for sure why this happens, but I think that perhaps what could be happening is that she's, Jacob is kind of saying goodbye to his old lifestyle. He's saying goodbye to his past. Remember back in the story of Jacob and Esau? Who was the one who was encouraging him to deceive his father, to take his brother's birthright, to take his brother's blessing? It was Rebekah. And so, this fact of Deborah, her, her nurse, dying, this might have been symbolically a way of saying, now you're moving on to a new life. Say goodbye to all the past. Say goodbye to your deceptive lifestyle. I'm calling you to live a new life. And so 
The second element of uh, revival is repentance. Turning from idols, turning from sin, turning from anything that would keep us from God. The third element of revival is worship. It says in the text that Jacob built an altar to God and that he erected a pillar and poured out a drink offering and an oil and oil on that pillar. He praised the God who had rescued him. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. If we're going to experience revival, we must offer God all of our lives, all of our worship. Our whole lives should be an act of worship to Him. We'll talk about that in just a second. So that's the third element of revival, worship. And then we move to the final, and I would say the most important element of revival, and that is grace. Grace is the most important element of revival. We see that all of Jacob's actions in this passage are rooted in the prior action of God. We saw earlier in Genesis that God appeared to Jacob when Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau. That Jacob was a deceiver. He was underhanded. He was a usurper. He didn't deserve God's presence. He wasn't somebody that you would choose as being particularly moral. Yet God met with him at Bethel, the house of God. God revealed himself to Jacob. God showed favor to Jacob. And God promised that he would be with Jacob. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 8, what Jacob says. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. If you'll be with me, if you'll take me back to my Father's house in peace, then you, Yahweh, will be my God. Now, we might think that this is a little much for Jacob to ask because he's kind of testing God. And it's true that he is testing God, but Jacob didn't have access to the Bible like we have. Jacob didn't have the record of the Scriptures, the record of people from ages past who proves the faithfulness of God. He didn't have that record. And he wants proof that God is going to be with him. He wants proof that God is going to be faithful to him. And we see that every step of the way, God shows himself faithful. As Jacob is fleeing from Esau, God meets him. As Jacob's with Laban, God blesses him. As Jacob leaves Laban, God appears to Laban and says, leave him alone, let him go. And he's able to leave Laban in peace. And then he's able to make peace with his brother. God turns the heart of Esau so that Esau doesn't kill Jacob. Then, even in this passage, it says that the terror of God fell upon the surrounding nations. Jacob was afraid that they were going to come and attack him because of what his sons had done. But the terror of God fell upon them. And now he's able to go back to Bethel in peace. Every step of the way, God was with him and God was faithful to him. And so we look at these elements of revival. We see obedience, repentance, and worship. And we see that all of these things are rooted in the prior action of God. Why does, God, why does Jacob obey? 
Jacob obeys because God had proved himself faithful. Jacob obeys because he believes that God is trustworthy. He believes that God has his best interests in mind. Why does he repent? Why does he remove the idols? He can remove those idols because God has proved himself sufficient. He's proved himself faithful. He's proved himself superior to all other gods. And he knows that he doesn't, Jacob knows that he needs no other God, that God is enough for him, that God is more powerful than anybody else, and anybody else is God. And then he worships God because God is the only one who is worthy of worship and are worthy of praise. And so each action is rooted in the prior action of God, and ultimately what it's what it's rooted in is in the rescue of God. That every step of the way, when Jacob fell into trouble, God would rescue him. God would bring him back. God would bring him to safety. And because of that, God is worthy of Jacob's devotion. He's worthy of his honor. He's worthy of his obedience and worthy of his whole life. And I think a similar thing is true for us. The impetus for our revival the impetus for our own devotion to God is the rescue of God. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because God first loved us. We love because He first loved us. It's not as if we need to muster up our own devotion, muster up our own revival. It's that we see how powerful, how wonderful, how faithful God has been to us. And when we see how faithful He's been to us, how could we not turn to Him and say, you are worthy of my praise, my honor, and my devotion. There are no other gods beside you. We simply turn to Him because He's worthy of our worship. Because He's proved Himself faithful to us. So let's return to the statement that I opened with, the statement by Henry Burley. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to Him. I think that Worley had a powerful and inspiring point and challenge in what he said. That God can do so much through us if we would only yield ourselves to Him. But I think there's more than that. There was one man, and only one man, who was fully consecrated to God. Who lived a perfect life, who honored God at every step of the way, who died on the cross, and three days later rose again, proving himself faithful to his people. There's one man who's fully consecrated to God, fully consecrated to the Father. And the world has seen what God could do through such a man. The world has seen that through such a man, people from all different nations and tribes and tongues could be brought into a relationship with the Father. The people who would maybe never associate with one another from worldly standards are brought together into one family and called by God and given new lives and new purposes and new hopes. That's what God can do through one man fully consecrated to Him. Because of that one man who was fully consecrated to Him, we also can be fully consecrated. Because of Christ's work, because of the Gospel, 
we also can be fully consecrated to the Father. Because Christ has made us new. He's given us a new identity. He's given us a new name. He's called us sons and daughters. And because of what He has done for us, we can turn from our sins and turn and follow Him with everything that we have. That when He speaks to us, we can obey. Because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That He works all things together for our good. That we can repent of our sin and idolatry. Because we know that there's one man, one God, who has the power to conquer sin and conquer death, and His name is Jesus Christ. And so we can turn from our sin and idolatry because He's the only one who has the answers, the only one who can rescue us. That all other gods will leave us empty. And we can turn and offer our bodies as living sacrifices, living lives in gratitude and praise for all that He's done for us because He is worthy. Revival is ultimately rooted in the Gospel. It's ultimately rooted in the one man who gave his life for us. And because of that, we have the opportunity to serve God wholeheartedly. This time we're going to sing another song and uh, we're going to take communion together. As we take communion, we're going to celebrate the death of Christ. And as the next song is playing, uh, maybe you could, you know, if you want to stand, stand. If you want to sit, sit. Uh, But maybe it's a time to just spend some time with God. Maybe it's a time to repent of sin. Maybe it's a time to repent of an idol that has been warring for your heart. Maybe it's a time to say, God, you know, I've been wrestling with you with this issue, but today I've decided I'm going to follow through. I want to obey you because I believe that you're worthy. I believe that you're faithful. Or maybe you just want to sit there in the quiet or stand Raise your hands and just say, God, I thank you for all that you've done for me, and I want to worship you today with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. So we're going to sing a song, um, and then we're going to take communion together.